Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 22. Fairies, demons, and a cat called Satan. A child in the cradle was taken vehemently sick in a marvellously strange manner, whereupon the mother of the child took it up in her arms to comfort it, which being done, the cradle rocked of itself six or seven times in the presence of one of the Earl of Surrey's gentlemen, who seeing it, stabbed his dagger three or four times into the cradle where it stayed, merrily saying that he would kill the devil if he could be rocked there. From the Chronicles compiled and published by Raphael Hollinshead, 1577. All hand in hand they traced on a tricksy ancient round, and soon as shadows were they gone and might no more be found, and in their place came fearful bugs as black as any pitch, with bellies big and swagging dugs more loathsome than a witch. Thomas Churchyard, 1593. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last time we covered the reign of Elizabeth I, who oversaw the country's religious reformation and pivot away from Rome. It only just occurred to me that multiple times last episode I said that Elizabeth was the first recognised Queen Regnant. I've no idea why I kept forgetting about Mary, her sister, so apologies for that, and before anyone says I know about Matilda as well, but her reign was disputed. I haven't forgotten about her too. Anyway, Elizabeth had had to deal with rebellious lords and dissident Catholics, a foreign invasion and the serious question of succession. And yet, despite all of this, by the time of her death, England had consolidated its domestic control over the church, established the monarch at its head, and the throne had peacefully passed to the king in the north, James VI of Scotland, and now the first of England. But we aren't yet returning to our old friend James. While last time we also covered the beliefs of the educated elite towards witchcraft, both the supporters of trials and their opponents, this week we will examine the beliefs of the commoners, the masses of peasants and urban workers who had little in the way of formal education. Not for them the theological crises and moralistic struggles that dominate the thoughts and actions of magistrates and officials. No, for the common sort of folk, their concerns were rather more mundane, concerned about how it would affect their daily life, and their definitions of witch and witchcraft were similarly more widely encompassing. For starters, while witchcraft may have been seen by some elites as immediately harmful, with significant distrust for any supernatural activity which their own religion did not authorise, regardless of its intentions, the line was much more blurred for those at the bottom of the economic and social ladder. For example, an old woman who provided healing services through muttered chants and herbal remedies was just as likely to be called a witch as a village diviner who predicted the future or used charms to find lost property. The methods of more established medical professionals, such as they were at the time, were confusing and hard to explain, and so were often understood in magical terms. Now, while some of these examples were tolerated, some were the target of suppression by the authorities. If you remember back to last episode, using sorcery to discover the location of treasure or stolen items 
was a crime under Elizabeth's 1563 Act, one that carried with it a sentence of a full year of imprisonment with regularly pillory sessions for the first conviction. Any future conviction was to be punished with death. Similarly, if the herbal treatments of a wise woman did not work, or, or worse, caused the patient's symptoms to become worse, then the healer would attract suspicion. Indeed, in many cases, suspects of harmful witchcraft, or maleficium, were already known to their community as a wielder of some kind of magical art. But what did your average Englishman believe maleficium to involve? We can learn a lot from the law codes of Elizabeth and Henry, with their specific prescriptions against harming cattle, crops, and people with magic, as well as outright magical murder. These concerns don't appear to be without popular agreement. In other words, there were enough people convicted under these acts for harming or damaging their neighbours and their property that we can make a fair assumption that this law was based on popular beliefs, at least in part. From 1558 until 1735, there were, according to Sir Keith Thomas, one of the scholars who set the foundation of English witchcraft studies in the early 1970s, 200 people convicted of witchcraft in the English home counties, those counties surrounding London. Of these 200, with the notable exceptions of those brought to trial by the Witchfinder General, only seven or eight were not found guilty of inflicting damage and harm on their neighbours or their property. Even those convicted by Hopkins, at least half were also found guilty of magical murder or vaxicide. How about that for the word of the day? Vaxicide, the Latin word for the killing of cattle, from vaxi for cow, and side for killing. There really is a word for everything. While witchcraft may have had a looser definition for everyday people, it does seem to have remained a mostly negative term. As Sir Keith writes in his chapter of Mary Douglas's Witchcraft Confessions and Accusations, quote, A witch was thus a person of either sex, but in belief and practice more often female, who could mysteriously injure or kill other people. She could also molest farm animals and frustrate such domestic operations as making butter, cheese, and beer. In England, her acts of damage, maleficium as it was technically called, usually came under one of these heads." End quote. One difference that stands out starkly from cases of witchcraft we've seen on the continent is that English witches were rarely accused of cosmic scales of destruction, such as creating storms or spreading plagues. The actions of a witch might be blamed for the freezing of crops in southern Germany, as persuasively argued by Beringer's weather, hunger and fear argument, which we covered back in the early episodes. And yet, similar accusations are rarely levelled at English witches, despite England facing a famine in 1586, and despite neighbouring Scotland facing the trials in 1590. Instead, English witches were more likely to be accused of highly mundane crimes based on personal grudges, and rarely interfered with the fertility of their targets, whereas continental witches were regularly accused of causing impotence or miscarriages. In many cases, accusations of witchcraft came from richer villagers against their poorer neighbours. Professor Alan McFarlane, another of the founders of English witchcraft scholarship in the 1970s, makes a convincing case that, as the responsibility for poor relief gradually transferred from the church to the community, resentment grew. If a poor neighbour was refused aid, an accusation of witchcraft was a means of transferring guilt. 
The transgressor of community norms was not the neighbour who refused to help another neighbour in their time of need, but rather the malevolent beggar whose mumbled threats preceded the sickness or death of a child or cattle. If Professor McFarlane's argument is true, then that would also explain the stereotypes that witch suspects tended to follow. If witchcraft accusations tended to be directed at those in society who had been refused neighbourly assistance, then we might expect to find that those convicted of witchcraft meet this criteria, and so we do. The elderly and the isolated, predominantly women and elderly widows, were far and away the most common focus of any Elizabethan and witchcraft trial. They were also the people most commonly physically incapable of working and without close family to support them. Ergo, they are more likely to seek assistance from their neighbours, are therefore more likely to be denied, and a subsequent misfortune could be laid at their feet. In the words of Sir Keith, quote, The overwhelming majority of English witch cases fell into this simple pattern. The witch was sent away, perhaps mumbling a maldiction, and in due course something went wrong with the household or one of its members, for which she was immediately held responsible. The requests made by the witch varied, but they were usually for food or drink. Butter, cheese, yeast, milk or beer. Sometimes she asked for money or a piece of equipment. In all cases, denial was followed by retribution, and the punishment often fitted the crime. End quote. This sort of ironic punishment is well attested to. When a servant boy stole a pair of gloves from a witch's daughter in 1579, he lost the use of his limbs for over a week. In 1530, so during Henry's reign, when one Christian Sherston asked for a drink of ale from her neighbour and was denied, the neighbour's, quote, stand of ale of twelve gallons began to boil as fast as a crock on the fire, end quote, which I have on good authority would just ruin all that beer and make it practically undrinkable. Another neighbour was asked for a drink of milk, and after they refused, their cow only produced blood and water. A third neighbour also denied Sherston milk and was unable to make any cheese from his cow for months. Other powers believed to be available to witches were much more generic. Sudden illness of the healthy was a prime example of witchcraft, to the extent that justices of the peace were instructed in a handbook that it was the first sign of such, quote, when a healthy body shall be suddenly taken, without probable reason or natural cause appearing. End quote. Of course, it goes without saying, or at least it did until I say, that the intellectual understanding of medicine and sickness was rudimentary compared to today. Nine times out of ten, an illness that seemed to have no visible cause to an early modern physician would be easily diagnosed by any modern medical student. This means that illnesses were more often than not blamed on the supernatural, either through providence, that is to say the punishment of God, or by witchcraft through the servants of the devil. In this context, it's easy to see why belief in witchcraft had a certain appeal. If God had decided to strike you down for your sins, well, there really wasn't much you could do about that. He's God, after all. You could pray for forgiveness, but Protestant theologians taught that God moved in mysterious ways, and that a good Christian was to suffer stoically. Which is all well and good, except that witchcraft posed a much more satisfying alternative. There were traditional ways of fighting off a witch's curse, after all, and many of these have often been termed counter-magic. If you remember back to episode 3, with the fraudulent witchcraft accusation in Rottenburg ob die Taube, the supposed victim of witchcraft had urinated in a bottle, 
with the intention being that his attacker would be greatly discomforted and under pressure until the bottle was smashed. Similar protections seem to have been common in England too. One way was to burn a piece of thatch off the roof of a witch's house, or by urinating in a bottle as in the Rottenberg case, but this time burying it. Either of these would bring the witch hurrying to the scene, which sort of makes sense with the thatch method because, you know, you're kind of burning her house down. Now, once the witch arrived, her curse could be broken by causing her harm. Now, this could be as varied as scratching her face, stabbing her with a pin in the buttocks, or otherwise harming her to draw blood. Once the blood was drawn, her spell would be broken. The most effective cure, of course, was to have the witch put to death. This would mean that if you genuinely believed that your neighbour had bewitched your family, having them executed was more than just revenge, it was a cure. Now, something that might have occurred to you is that in order to draw the blood of or harm a witch who had attacked you, you had to already know who was responsible. Now, granted, the idea behind the urine method was to draw the witch to you, but you couldn't just burn anyone's thatched roof, you had to already suspect a specific person or family to be to blame. Sometimes a suspect for supernatural revenge was in mind even before the witchcraft was attempted. In 1573, Mary Dingley said to a Marjorie Singleton, I have a suspicion in thee, and if any in my house should miscarry, thou shalt answer for it. I don't know why Dingley had this suspicion, if anyone in her household did have a miscarriage, or if Singleton was held accountable, but it is a bold move to scare off a possible witch. As we will see later when we cover specific trials, there was usually a connection, or negative relationship, between the victim and the suspect. Why, after all, would a witch attack someone they didn't know for no reason? Indeed, Sir Keith states that Elizabethan and Stuart authorities were, of course, horrified by the actions and spiritual allegiance of witches brought to trial for such maleficium. But it was rare indeed for them to state that they had not a genuine reason to wish ill upon their supposed victim. Rather than earning them any sort of compassion, however, this was often used to reinforce their guilt. After all, what is a crime without a motive? Also central to the prosecution of Elizabethan witches, and something that remained common throughout the Stuart and Commonwealth eras, was the importance of the witch's mark. We've covered this before, but to refresh your memory, a witch's mark, or witch's teat, was meant to be the place on a witch's body where either the devil suckled or drew blood from the witch in a mark of homage to the Prince of Darkness, or where a witch fed her familiar, a demonic assistant that either took the form of a household animal or an entity from folklore. These fairies hailing from traditional English folklore had faced something of an image problem with the English Reformation. With the Reformation, attempts were made to structure the spiritual world in order to conform to the Bible. While very much simplified to say, there is merit in saying that for Protestant thinkers, if it wasn't in the Bible, then it wasn't acceptable. Again, simplified, this was the attitude towards traditional Catholic teachings, such as the power of saints to intervene in the world, as well as the existence of purgatory. As you might expect, there was very little in the Bible describing early modern English folklore, and yet theologians had a problem. They couldn't just say that spirits and fairies didn't exist and never had. There were far too many reports, both at the time and in the past, to simply dismiss them out of hand. So instead, the source and motives of fairies changed, usually in one of two ways. 
Either the witness was deluded by Catholic superstition and had hallucinated, or otherwise lied about seeing a goblin or ghost, or they had been tricked by the devil and his servants. Good old Reggie Scott, he who wrote The Discovery of Witchcraft in Opposition to Witch Belief, attributed the belief in supernatural creatures to Catholic superstition. Minister Henry Holland, writing in 1590, complained that his congregation brought stories of fairies and goblins, quote, with the rotten mist of popery, end quote. In 1603, the future Archbishop of York, Samuel Harsnett, echoed this when he also related fairies and imps to a, quote, popish mist which had befogged the eyes of our poor people, end quote. The other avenue of thought, that these apparitions were instead from the devil, was also rather popular. Professor Diane Perkis summed it up quite nicely when she states that, quote, for godly Protestants, fairies were demons, end quote. Hence the excerpt from Thomas Churchyard's poem at the beginning of the episode. Dr. Darren Aldridge wonderfully describes him as, quote, one of the least golden writers of the golden age of English poetry, whose work has been mercifully neglected. Still, it does present the growing belief that fairies only appeared friendly and beautiful to lure in good Christians, and that underneath they were hideous demons sent by the devil. Indeed, in the words of Dr. Aldridge, quote, This emphasis on false religion and illusion led naturally to the devil. The qualities that connected fairyland so clearly to Catholicism connected them both to the father of lies. Belief in fairies and belief in popery resulted from spiritual blindness, the propensity of fallen men and women to be seduced by false ideas about the supernatural. End quote. Despite this, there doesn't appear to have been any sustained campaign by the Protestant authorities to outright demonise the creatures from English folklore. Yes, they were seen as ultimately harmful to the spiritual well-being of the population, but it was the belief in fairies, rather than fairies themselves, that faced public condemnation. This is a blurry distinction, but it is a distinction. This may be because folklore was, ultimately, far more marginal than other traditional beliefs, at least to theologians. The worship of saintly relics was condemned and punished because it smacked of idolatry and Catholicism. The belief in ghosts also faced heavier state opposition due to its inherent connection with the idea of purgatory. The existence of fairies was an irritant to the godly ministers who raged against them, to be sure, but far more dangerous was the belief in their existence. Put simply, if you accepted that fairies and imps and goblins were real, you had succumbed to superstition and fallen for the tricks of the devil and or the pope. The devil did not need to manifest himself or his servants if the belief that he could was enough on its own. So let's take a look at some of the trials during Elizabeth's reign. The first witch trial reported in an English pamphlet, a medium that would become the most popular way to record such events, details how, in 1566, three women were accused of witchcraft, with one, Elizabeth Francis, confessing to being gifted a familiar at the age of 12 by her grandmother. One aspect of witch beliefs that is more dominant in English trials than anywhere else is the idea of familiars, demonic servants often provided by the devil when one first became a witch at the Sabbath, that took the form of common animals such as dogs, cats, and mice. Familiars 
aided witches in their evil, monitored their loyalty to their new infernal master, and were fed the witch's own blood from her mark, which we discussed earlier. In Elizabeth Francis's case, her familiar was a black cat that was called, rather on the nose I have to say, Satan, who spoke to her and brought her gifts. At one point, she claimed that he brought her 18 sheep, which historian James Sharp suggests was the upper limit of her idea of wealth. Satan, the cat not the devil, also attempted to gain for her the love of an Andrew Biles, and when Biles refused to marry her, the cat caused his harvest to fail, and then killed him. Every time Satan, the cat not the devil, did something for Elizabeth, she would feed it a drop of her blood. When Elizabeth finally found a man to marry her, she reportedly grew bored and ordered Satan, the cat not the devil, to kill her six-month-old daughter and cripple her husband. Under questioning, Elizabeth then denounced her sister, Agnes Waterhouse, as also being a witch. Elizabeth confessed to trading Satan, the cat not the devil, to Agnes for a cake, which seems like a terrible deal for Elizabeth. Agnes then used the familiar to kill one of her pigs to test its powers, and, after an argument with a neighbour, had it kill their cattle. Perhaps my favourite bit of this report is this. Satan, the cat not the devil, had a bed made out of a pot stuffed with wool, but Agnes needed the wool. So she turned Satan, the cat not the devil, into a toad. There's just something so mundane and casual about that. When questioned about her religious habits, Agnes said that she prayed often, but only in Latin, at Satan's, the toad, not the devil's request. What is interesting about this bit of the account is the fact that Agnes's confession does not have her renouncing God, as many continental confessions did and would. Instead, and much worse to the Elizabethan mind, was that the devil preferred her to use Latin, a dangerous connection to Catholicism. The third witch on trial was Agnes's daughter, Joan, who backed up the other two confessions with her own testimony. Notably, at the first trial, a number of very high-profile members of the judiciary were present, including the Queen's attorney, Sir Gilbert Gerard, suggesting that this was both important to the Crown as well as unusual. Agnes was hanged for witchcraft after this trial, although Elizabeth was hanged 13 years later, after a second conviction for witchcraft. This time, in 1579, she was accused of harassing one Richard Gallus, the son of a former mayor of Windsor, with a strange cat. Gallus declared that it was none other than, quote, the devil himself in the likeness of a cat, end quote. This seems to coincide with a reported witch trial in the same place, in the same year, heavily involving the same Richard Gallus and involving four other witches. I haven't been able to establish what connection, if any, these had, Elizabeth Francis is not mentioned by name in the pamphlet, but there is an Elizabeth style. It's possible that they are the same woman. I cannot find the surname of her eventual crippled husband, and this mother style was stated to be widowed. In either case, this Elizabeth style appears to have had something of a reputation for magic. When a young boy threw a stone at her house and ran home, his father immediately went to take him back to make his apologies but on the way, the boy felt a terrible pain in his hand, and they diverted to two other cunning folk, who dispelled a curse. Restored to health, father and son returned home. The wrong had been righted, and the son had learnt his lesson. It seems like Stiles' reputation was such that the boy's pain was immediately concluded to be Stiles' magic, and also that this was an acceptable part of the exchange, and amends had been made with the boy's curse. 
Another villager went to these cunning folk, complaining that after arguing with Mother Style, he had developed a terrible backache. The wise man, after his patient told him he suspected Mother Style, prescribed, quote, meet her and scratch her, so that you draw blood of her, you shall presently mend, end quote. Whether or not he did so, another villager suffered a similar malady at the suspected hands of Style. The treatment was the same, and once he successfully scratched the woman, his sickness faded. Stiles' feud with Gallus led to him reporting her to Sir Henry Neville, who assembled a group of respectable locals and brought the accused to be examined. Despite their reputations, the accused witches described themselves as virtuous and the victims of slander, and were let off rather lightly. Their punishment, such as it was, was to attend the following Sunday's church sermon, which they did to prove their devout and pious nature. So, it was a little bit awkward when two of them subsequently died a few days later. Gallus immediately jumped on this as a sign of divine wrath, that the women were wicked and were being punished. Gallus apparently went to a whole new level, carrying a club and harassing those villagers he believed to be witches, going so far as to tie a rope around Stiles and drag her through the mud to the house of Sir Henry. Understandably, Sir Henry was less than pleased with this vigilantism and ordered the woman released and forbade Gallus from doing anything of this sort again. Now quite certain he had put the matter to bed and brought peace to the village, Sir Henry relaxed. So it was again rather awkward when an order from the Privy Council, signed by the Queen herself, demanded that he arrest all those suspected of witchcraft. The two surviving witches from the earlier trial, including Mother Stiles, were joined by two more suspected witches. They do not appear to have been tortured, and were instead begged to confess to their crimes to a pastor, which Stiles seems to have done. In this confession, she explains how she made red wax figures of her victims, quote, about a span long and three or four fingers broad, end quote. And then she pricked them with thorns from a hawthorn tree, sometimes causing their death. Notably, she listed Richard Gallus's father, the former mayor of Windsor, as one of her victims, somewhat explaining his vendetta. She went on to list a number of other deaths that both she and her accomplices were responsible for, including a local farmer, his maid, and two butchers. Brought to trial on this confession, others came forward to give evidence against the four women. It was an open and shut case. Style and her three accomplices were found guilty of murder and were hanged until they were dead. A few years later, in 1582, in St. Osythe, in East Anglia, 14 women were charged with witchcraft. Of these, 10 were charged with the capital offence of causing death through sorcery. At the centre of the affair was an Ursula Kemp, a sometimes nursemaid, sometimes midwife, who had a reputation for curing sickness through her magical abilities. Ursula had cured a young boy, Davy Thurlow, of an unnamed illness, but his mother, Grace Thurlow, refused her services as a nursemaid for her younger daughter, apparently causing insult. So, when said daughter fell out of her cot and broke her neck, fingers were immediately pointed at Ursula, although apparently not by Grace, who instead sought her out for treatment for her arthritis. Ursula, unfazed by the accusations that she'd murdered Grace's daughter, showed her a technique to ease the pain, but Grace refused to pay her for her time, at which point her arthritis got worse. Taking this as a sign of Ursula's malice, 
Grace then went to the authorities, and Ursula went to trial. At the trial, the magistrate, Brian Darcy, persuaded Ursula's eight-year-old son to testify that his mother was a witch, and after being promised clemency if she cooperated, Ursula confirmed her son's account, testifying that she had four familiars, two in the form of cats called Titty and Jack, one in the form of a toad called Piggin, and another a lamb called Tiffin. She fed these familiars on bread, cake, beer, and, of course, her own blood. Jack, the black cat, had killed Ursula's sister-in-law, and the lamb had killed Grace's daughter. Prompted for the names of her associates, Ursula complied, naming a series of women who were, in turn, prompted for further names. In the end, only two people were not indicted for witchcraft. For the others, a variety of fates awaited. Most were imprisoned for some stretch of time, either for witchcraft or for crimes other than witchcraft. A couple were acquitted, but Ursula Camp was not one of them. Despite being promised clemency, she was hanged by the neck until she was dead alongside one other defendant, Elizabeth Bennett. In 1921, two skeletons were discovered in St. Asythe with iron rivets hammered into their joints, a common way to stop witches rising from the grave. These were believed to be the remains of Ursula and Elizabeth. Mr. Darcy was made Sheriff of Essex in 1586, possibly because of the success and scale of his highly publicised witch trials, and in some reports he was knighted in 1587, although there is little corresponding evidence for this. Not a bad reward for lying to a child to have him condemn his own mother, is it? Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. Financial support is always welcome, and can be given at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.